Hey, what's going on, friends? It's Pam, it's John, and it's time for the Jmart cast for Monday, October 3rd. What's going on? How are you? Man, what a week it's been. It's the start of October, which means it's the start of sober October. And I've started the, the month by uh, abstaining from inebriating substances, by doing my jujitsu tournament, and also by doing one minute of wall handstanding yesterday and I will continue to do the one minute wall handstands every day for the month of October till October 31st. Before I get into the jiu-jitsu tournament, let me just start by earlier in the week. So I started off the week on Monday and Tuesday going to jiu-jitsu practice and getting some good rolls in, get some good classes in where I was hoping to kind of feel more confident about my game and my plan for the tournament on Saturday. And I felt good after those first two uh, training sessions, both on Monday and Tuesday. And then afterwards, I was thinking that maybe I'll just relax and not go to any more classes and kind of do my own conditioning at home. It was just to give my body a bit of a break from the actual physical kind of damage that you incur from <laughs> practicing so that I would be at my best for Saturday. But in reality, I was not actually going to be at my best for Saturday because I had some other pl- other plans <laughs> of like fun things to do on Friday night. And before I get to the Friday night thing on Thursday, I went and got a haircut because the hair is getting a bit long and, you know, I want it to be uh, neat and tidy before the tournament. So I went to my um, previous client who used to train with me, who's now turned into a hairdresser. His name's Stan and he works at um, BSH Toronto. I think it's called BSH Black Sheep Hair, something like that. Uh, great little, um, uh, what do you call those? hair salons, I guess, in downtown Toronto on Church Street. And uh, highly recommend you go there and ask for Stan and he'll do a great job, you know, cutting your hair and everything. Um, yeah, so he did an awesome job cleaning everything up. And then I was about ready to go. And then somebody had heard that I was going to have a tournament and was suggesting that I should get the hair braided to really clean it up and get it out of the way. And I, you know, I'd seen other people do that for like martial arts, uh, fights and for jiu-jitsu as well so I thought it was a good idea never had my hair braided actually I've had my hair braided once before but this is the first time where someone spent like a decent amount of time actually doing it they did like five braids one down the middle and then two on either side going from the front to back looked pretty awesome I posted a picture of it on my Instagram if anyone got a chance to see it and I thought it looked really cool I left that hair salon feeling like a million bucks (laughs) and then on Friday, uh, I had plans with my wife to go out and have a nice date night together. We had made these plans well before, ahead of the time that I knew that I was going to participate in the uh, uh, jiu-jitsu tournament. So I was not going to give up going out and having fun and partying with my wife like as a way of like resting and you know preparing myself for the tournament. It's my first jiu-jitsu tournament, so I was just planning on having fun. So it didn't matter to me if I wasn't going to perform well. So the wife and I went out to a comedy show at Meridian Hall. We saw uh, Tim Dillon, hilarious comedian. He uh, has a new stand-up special on Netflix. Check that out. I watched it. It was hilarious. And then the show that we went to see is actually his his show where he's not really doing stand-up comedy. There's still lots of jokes, but he's just kind of sitting around in front of a desk. And he brought another comedian with him who is also really funny and who I've heard of before as well. He's, he's a Greek comedian 
well, American, but he's obviously Greek. His name is Giannis Papas. You can't get a more Greek name than that. Both of them were hilarious and had such funny commentary on like many different topics. They kind of just went through every topic that's in the news right now, everything from Ukraine to like trans people and everything in between and just made fun of, made fun of Canada in every single possible way, all the lockdowns and mandates here. Like it was great. It was so fun. My wife really enjoyed it and the show, um, ended in a it was only an hour long i was hoping it'd be a bit longer so the show ended we left and we still had tickets to go to uh coda which is a awesome world-class nightclub here in toronto that uh hosts a lot of um world-class djs that come in through the city to do performances so we were going to go see this i think he's swedish swedish dj Kristoff. let me double check that nope i'm wrong he is a brit okay so british dj Kristoff. Um, he's got this, uh, pretty well-known song, uh, you can look up on Spotify called Breathe. Uh, anyway, we went to the, the show was going to start at 10, but of course there's, um, uh, opener and then, um, you know, the main guy goes on quite a bit later. So since the, uh, comedy show was a little bit earlier in the night, we had some time to kill before the comedy, sh- before, like before the, uh, music show started. So we went and, uh, hung out at like a nearby pub for a few, for a little bit. And then, uh, just after 10, when the doors for the show opened, probably around 1030, we got in and it was not that full, pretty empty, but the opener was playing music. So my wife and I had a good time, just kind of dancing, having a good time together. And then soon after the place started to really fill up and, you know, we started off at the front, uh, kind of really close to the DJ booth. And then as people started filing in, filing in, we got pushed further and further back, which was fine for us. But, you know, because uh, we're getting a bit older, my wife doesn't have the same level of energy that I do. <laughs> she got pretty tired uh, pretty quickly. And soon after midnight, we were kind of like, uh, well, at least she was ready to leave. So around 1230, like Christoph hadn't come on yet. It was still the opening DJ going on. And my wife's like, I've, I've had enough. We've had, we had two hours here, two hours of dancing. This, this, we had fun. Let's just go home. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to, uh, force her to stay longer beyond what she wanted to. So we called it a night and left. So we didn't really get to see Christoph, but it was still an awesome night. Uh, we, you know, obviously got to enjoy the comedy show, a little bit of a break in, in between the comedy and the, and the music and then the, the music for, for a couple hours, decent amount of drinking throughout the whole thing. So we got home probably like around one in the morning <laughs> and went to bed. And of course, the next day was the jujitsu tournament. So I didn't get the greatest of sleep due to all the alcohol, then had to wake up kind of early-ish, not that early, but like I think between 6.30 and 7, I got up because the <laughs> kids were up. My dad was actually uh, babysitting the night before. Uh, which was nice of him. Thank you, Dad, <laughs> for doing that. So we had grandparents babysitting while wife and I went out and then came back and restarted our real life of watching over children <laughs> in the morning. And I was like just so exhausted from like, you know, staying up from all the drinking. And the tournament was going to start at noon. <laughs> oh my God. So I did not feel my best. I did not feel um, recuperated. Luckily, during the first nap of my little baby girl, I was able to get another hour and a half of sleep, which helped quite a bit, felt a bit more normal by, by noon. So we went to my gym and the 
tournament was going to start at noon, but you know people were late, so it started a bit later, closer to one actually. And so the way it was set up was it was originally supposed to be just submission only, but then um, we they changed up the rules because they were worried that due to the fact that it was submission only, there wouldn't be a clear winner a lot of times and they just wanted to avoid that. So they added points in and I didn't really know what the point scoring system was, but I was like, whatever, it doesn't matter to me. Let's just go. And so in my group, there was like four people, including me that I was going to compete with. And the way they had it set up, it was just going to be a round robin and that's it. So you just fight everyone in your category once and then, um, based on like i guess how well you do against everybody there's a rank and then you get first second or third so between the four people that i was faced off they're all about the same size as me and they all had blue belts just like i did and so the first match started and it was going all right the person did kind of sneak attack me with an ankle pick and got me down pretty early on in the match, which really surprised me. And then I was like, oh, this is going to be a lot harder than I anticipated. I quickly recovered, got back up, and then took him down. And then kind of basically throughout the rest of the five minutes, it was five-minute matches, the rest of the five minutes, I was stayed on top and kept kind of dominating from the top and scoring points. And then I didn't submit the person, but due to having more control and more kind of takedowns, I won pretty handily. I was super tired after that, though, because the person I was uh, matched against was no joke. He was like doing a lot of stuff that was really <laughs> difficult to overcome in terms of like the defense he was he was putting on me. So I wasn't really able to put him in a threat of a choke or any sort of submission. But, um, you know, I still got the points and won and then. I was exhausted, like I said, and just I, I I was like, I feel more exhausted than I should be after that. This must be due to the partying last night. And so I was like, all right, I need to get away and get some open space, get some fresh air and like feel normal again. <laughs> so I go off, do some breathing, slowly recover. I come back like five minutes later. So like one match after mine has already gone by. And the next match, they're already calling my name. They're like, you're up for your second match. I'm like, what? I'm not recovered yet. I'm so tired. Please don't make me go again. They're really nice. So they uh, they postponed it five more minutes. They got another match to go before me. So the whole, the whole time as I'm watching the, the next match, I'm like trying to breathe slow and recover. And it's just like, I'm not able to recover. I'm not able to <laughs> recover. <laughs> but the time passes the match ends and then now it's my turn. They're like, hope you rested enough because we're not giving you any more time. I'm like, okay. So go out, I go off against this um, Irish dude, I think. His name was Kieran. And he was fucking tough as well. Man, he, he also got a takedown on me early on. And I was like, oh, this is a repeat. <laughs> and luckily, like I was able to um, reverse that, get some points back, but then it was much more of a back and forth affair compared to the first match where he would take me down, get some control on top, then I would reverse, I'd take him down, get some control on top, back and forth, and I was just so exhausted and out of the corner, uh, the timekeepers like going like, you got still two minutes, two minutes, I'm like, two minutes, holy crap, but you're up by one, John, <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm up by one, just two minutes to survive, all right, so... I uh, got a top position. I just was like, all right, just keep him down for two minutes and like, uh, you know, try to survive. Don't let him get on top. 
And of course, now the referee's like, you can't rest on top. Got to keep moving. Got to keep like attacking or else I'm going to like break it off. So, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I try to, I like, I listen to the ref. Of course, I try to like, uh, move about and try different things. I'm not just resting anymore. And just as I'm about to do that, like the guy like almost reverses things on me, but I was able to kind of readjust and like prevent him from getting a takedown on me, which was nice. And, uh, due to, I, I don't know, I don't, due to the scramble, I can't re- remember exactly what happened, but my gi came off and, he was all kind of, my opponent was all kind of thrown off as well. So the ref stopped the match. I hear 15 seconds left. Uh, I'm still up by one point. And like my uh, gi was like almost completely off. I just had my like part of my sleeves on still. So I'm like, okay, I need some extra rest. I'm just going to take this gi off <laughs> to get like a few more seconds of just being able to recover. A couple deep breaths in. Uh, luckily they didn't get too mad at me. They just kind of, the ref pulled, pulled the gi fully off of me, kind of fixed it so I could put it back on, help me put it back on. And then like 15 seconds to go, the guy like knows he has to do something. So he shot for a double leg to take me down with all the rest of the strength I had. I just, uh, sprawled as hard as I could, pushed his head down and, uh, survived the last 15 seconds and just collapsed on the floor. I couldn't even get up. <laughs> for like the hand raising ceremony where they declared me the winner. <laughs> and so I won my first two matches. I had one more match left to go. And of course the last match was against an opponent who had won his first two matches. So this was kind of going to be kind of like a real final where the two best people in our foursome were going to face off. And I was just so exhausted, so out of it, couldn't recover in time. I, I, I just said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to compete. I, I apologize deeply to both my competitor and to my coach, but there's just simply no way that I was going to be able to compete anymore. I had given more than 100% of what I had in the tank. And just due to all the drinking and partying and dancing and staying up till late, like into the night, there's just no like second wind, no nothing left to be able to <laughs> recover and you at least try compete. Like I was just going to, he was just going to easily submit me in the first like 15 to 30 seconds. So I was like, there's no point. Um, so the other, uh, that opponent who I was going to face off, he ended up winning first place in our, in our group. I did get the second place. <laughs> they even gave me a second place medal. And so that was the end of the weekend. <laughs> can't say I'm really disappointed by the results. I mean, I didn't really take it too seriously. I didn't prepare that well for it, but I was still able to win my first two matches, even though there was no submission, unfortunately. So I'll take it. (laughs) So anyways, let's move on with what else did I want to talk about this week? First of all, um, one thing uh, I I tweeted about on my uh, Twitter page today was about physical activity. Here's what I said. A physical activity that you enjoy doing on a weekly basis to stay active or healthy is great, but not enough in my opinion. So me personally, my physical activity is of course jujitsu that I'm doing. And, but I'm, in my opinion, just doing jujitsu is just not going to be enough. So I go on to say it needs to be supplemented with a daily personal movement practice which helps maintain your joints and mitigate the effects of repetitive movement from the fun activity. Yeah, like so 
for example, from doing jujitsu this past week and uh, doing the tournament, my low back is killing me. Why? Because in jujitsu, you're constantly flexing your back. You're constantly rounding. You're trying to, you know, do that to your opponent as well. So it's a lot of forces on the low back muscles, joints, and tendons. So no wonder I feel a lot of tension down there now. And just doing jujitsu is not going to make that feel better. I need to have an additional kind of stretching or exercising to help mitigate, like I said, the effects of having done that. There's a lot of repetitive movement in a lot of, um, in, in, in these sports and these fun activities. So you got to do almost like the reverse of that to make sure that you're not getting overuse injuries. Anyway, so I go on to say that it doesn't have to take forever. Just 10 to 15 minutes daily should be enough. If this is a big, if, if you're familiar with your body and you know how to stretch, right? This takes a long time to develop, unfortunately, because, you know, when people first start off, I've had this experience with a lot of clients is they have no idea. They have no connection, no mind muscle connection with their body and their mind in order to understand how some of the specific movements I asked them to do, how to actually control their body to make that movement. It takes some time to develop that. And it also takes some time to learn how to stretch and, you know, um, target specific parts of your body that you really want to target. So if you can do those things, then actually once you figure that out, then it doesn't take much time at all. Like I said, 10 to 15 minutes daily. That's all you need. It's all you, like I said, that's all you really need. Um, like I said, and then I go on to say, if you don't have a daily personal movement practice supplementing your weekly fun activities, then you run the risk of not being able to do that set of fun activity sooner in life than you'd like to. Um, like I said, with, with my jujitsu practice, if I'm not doing something in addition to that jujitsu practice to make sure that I'm not getting any overuse injuries, that my body feels good after these, um, you know, highly, uh, difficult tasks, then pretty soon I'm going to have a pretty bad back and I'm not going to be able to roll, not going to be able to do jujitsu and not going to be able to have fun. Enjoy this thing that I really enjoy and cherish now. So this is very important for me. I want to continue to be able to do jujitsu for as long as I can for the rest of my life. But I know that if I continue on a pace of like just destroying my body and not doing anything to recover, to replenish it back, then it's going to be over a lot sooner than I want it to. And then one last thing I said was forgot to mention that some form of a conscious breathing practice is usually the best bang for your buck movement to include in your daily personal movement practice. I 100% believe in this. I think breathing, I've mentioned this before, but it's the best movement that can have the most impact on your body. The only sing- the single movement that can have the most impact on your body compared to any other single movement. And of course, there's lots of options on what to do and how to breathe. You know, you can also, you can do the basic box breathing, right? That's when you inhale for four seconds, hold your breath for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, hold your breath for four four seconds again, and repeat that cycle. It doesn't even have to be four seconds. You can just start with two seconds for each segment and then work your up to four and then higher and higher. That's one option. You can just do simple inhalation through the nose, exhalation through the mouth, making the exhalation as long as possible. That's another option. There's always Wim Hof breathing as well. All these things are good and also complementary to one another. So it's good to change up the different breathing practices that you do. 
and they have multiple impacts, not just on like how your body feels, but also mentally how you feel. So like I said, breathing, conscious breathing, practicing that is the best bang for your buck exercise you can possibly do. So include that in your personal movement practice and develop your personal movement practice to be a consistent daily thing, 10 to 15 minutes. Okay, moving on. All right, so the Bank of Canada Twitter account is added again. This time, they have a little video of the um, head of the Bank of Canada. His name's Tiff Macklin, I believe. And it's basically a video of him answering a question. And the question is, why raise rates when inflation and the cost of living are already so high? Reasonable question. And so there's a video of Tiff Macklin answering the question. But the hilarious thing is that they have like this fun, happy music playing in the background so that you get like this non-negative emotional response to what he's saying. Because if you just listen to it without the music, you would get angry listening to it. Let's listen to it together. Inflation is too high, and, and that's affecting all Canadians. It's particularly affecting Canadians on low incomes and, and Canadians on, on, on with fixed incomes. All right, so he's saying, yeah, the inflation is too high. It's already affecting the poorest people and the old people, right? Lowest incomes, the poor people, fixed incomes, the old people that, you know, have saved up all the money and now they have a fixed amount of money they can spend monthly. Great. So you're admitting that inflation is hurting those that are most vulnerable. Thanks a lot. By the way, you hear that music in the background? <laughs> it is important that we get inflation back down. So, Okay, so now you admit that it's important to get inflation back down, you POS. Where was this thinking when there was an insane deficit that was monetized by the Bank of Canada to support the Trudeau government? Now you want to get inflation back down? Like it was down before and then you did all this money printing, right? Monetized the debt and now inflation skyrocketing. So you made a mistake, not admitting to the mistake, but now you want to get it back down because you realize that your mistake is hurting all the vulnerable people, the poor people and the old people. Oh, thanks, Tiff Macklem. Canadians... Can, can plan their spending and, and their saving. Oh, you want us to plan our spending and saving? What saving? The saving that you inflated away, right? The, the savings that not worth anything anymore, right? How can we plan our spending when, when we have no idea like how much money we're going to have when inflation is skyrocketing up towards double digits? It, and it is double digits. It's just the, the number that they're really, you know, they're telling us is suppressed. It's not the real inflation number, but... Whatever, we're just going to ignore all that. And they don't get surprised by big changes in their cost of living. Oh, you mean like the big change where the inflation was like 2% and now it's almost 10%? Is that what you're talking about, Tiff? You dum-dum? So, yes, it can seem a bit counterintuitive. We're raising interest rates, which is raising the cost of borrowing when, when other costs are going up. But it is by raising interest rates that we're going to slow spending in the economy, give the economy time to catch up and take... Right. So they want a slow spending economy by raising the interest rates so you actually can't afford to buy anything. So thereby you slow it down, right? You're destru destroying demand. <laughs> People can't afford anything, so they're not going to buy anything. Therefore, poof, problem solved. Inflation's gone. Thanks for nothing like the economy's not going to catch up when no one can afford to buy anything right 
You're just taking the steam out of the economy by making people not be able to afford anything. <laughs> and you're saying that things are going to catch up. How can things get, get caught up when everything's getting destroyed? You take the steam out of inflation. That's going to get inflation back down. That's going to be better for all Canadians. Right. That's the end of the video they got. <laughs> so we're going to demand destruction, raise interest rates so no one can afford anything, and that'll take the steam out of the inflation. Can you believe that they actually put this out for people to see? And of course, they got to dress it up with the nice happy music in the background. Otherwise, like it's like if they didn't have the happy music in the back, like would that make anyone happy listening to what the hell he had to say? No, it wouldn't. <laughs> oh my God. Like the, some of the dumb things that, uh, the nonsense, nonsense that like that is coming out of Bank of Canada's Twitter account is just insane at this point. Like, we're living in a madness, mad world. Like, and then of course, only a few days after this, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but the Bank of England, one of the most important like central banks in the world, had to start the money printer. Basically, well, actually, that's not true. They didn't have to start the money printer yet, but essentially, what happened was that. They wanted to, the government of the, the great, the British government wanted to take out more loans. And so there was no buyers for their loans, right? No one was going to buy any more loans because they don't, they don't trust the government. They don't, they don't, they don't think it's worth anything to get loans from them. So what happened was, and I'm not going to be the best explainer of this, but the way I understand, you know, government bonds or bonds in general, you know, when no one wants to, buy a bond, what you have to do is you have to increase the interest that the bond pays so that there's more, it looks more attractive for people to get. But the way bonds work again is once you increase the interest, then the actual value of the bond goes down. So even though interest goes up, the value goes down. And that has uh, repercussions on all the previous bonds that had been uh, like previously dished out right by the, by the government. So by increasing the interest rates of the new bonds they want to take, the old, the value of the old bonds was going to be going down lower and lower. And this is going to be a huge problem for them because they have like these funds that are pension funds that are highly, highly exposed to these government, government bonds, government treasuries, treasury bonds, whatever you want to call them. Um, doesn't matter. And so it was going to lead to basically the pension funds, all their assets under management like devaluing so extremely that it would basically bankrupt it so that all the people in Great Britain who were part of this pension fund who had paid in, you know, whatever basis, monthly basis, weekly basis, I don't know how much they, how frequently they contribute, but all that money was going to evaporate and disappear unless the, the central bank stepped in and bought the bonds to and prevented from the interest rates going up any higher than they needed to and bringing the value of the bonds down. And apparently this is, you know, a temporary thing. They've only done this out of their actual reserves. They haven't had to print money yet to do it. But let's be serious. They're going to have to. Like if they already did this just now, it's like literally like days before that, they were like trying to act all tough and be like, oh, we're raising interest rates. Um, but soon after, they're forget all that. They're just using their reserves apparently to buy up all these uh, you know, government bonds that are worthless, that are never going to be paid back. <laughs> That's why nobody else wants to buy them. Just to save their, like, you know, pensioners and those people. So 
not just not to say just i mean that's very, a very important thing but the fact that it got to this point is what's wrong with it right like <laughs> so bank of england is the first domino to fall this is going to continue and uh, you know going to be a wrecking ball all through the rest of europe japan china america uh, grab pop- some popcorn and let's see what happens <laughs> okay what else and one more thing I guess I wanted to talk about today was um, this journal article that came out in the Journal of Insulin Resistance. The author is Asim Malhotra, and it was published on September 26, 2022. The title is Curing the Pandemic of Misinformation on COVID-19 mRNA Vaccines Through Real Evidence-Based Medicine, Part 1. There's a part two as well. I'll just read through the abstract of part one and also one little part in the rest of the um, article just to kind of give you an idea what this is all about. Okay, so they say, in response to severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2, several new pharmaceutical agents have been administered to billions of people worldwide, including the young and healthy at little risk from the virus. Considerable leeway has been afforded in terms of the preclinical and clinical testing of these agents, despite an entirely novel mechanism of action and concerning biodistribution characteristics. The aim is to gain a better understanding of the true benefits and potential harms of the messenger RNA coronavirus disease vaccines. The methods are a narrative review of the evidence from randomized trials and real-world data of the COVID mRNA products with special emphasis on the Pfizer vaccine. The results. In the non-elderly population, the number needed to treat to prevent a single death runs into the thousands. Reanalysis of randomized control trials using the mRNA technology suggests a greater risk of severe adverse events from the vaccines than being hospitalized from COVID-19. Okay, that's surprising because we were told it's the other way around. Pharmacovigilance systems and real-world safety data coupled with plausible mechanisms of harm are deeply concerning, especially in relation to cardiovascular safety. Mirroring a potential signal from the Pfizer Phase 3 trial, a significant rise in cardiac arrest calls to ambulances in England was seen in 2021 with similar data emerging from Israel in the 16 to 39-year-old age group. Conclusion, it cannot be said that the consent to receive these agents was fully informed as is required ethically and legally. A pause and reappraisal of global vaccination policies for COVID-19 is long overdue. That's the entirety of the abstract for this paper. Um pretty shocking to hear to read all this stuff this is what i've been thinking and talking about for like over a year now and it's really good to see finally some of this stuff be acknowledged (laughs) and here's something else that i've been railing on the the use of statistics to like make things look better than they actually are so here's an example they give from the article in terms of efficacy headlines around the world made very bold claims of 95 percent effectiveness the interchangeable use of efficacy and effectiveness, glossing over the big difference between controlled trial and real-world conditions. It would be understandable for the lay public and doctors to interpret that if 100 people are vaccinated, then 95%
of people would be protected from getting the infection. Even the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, recently admitted in an interview that it was initial news from CNN that made her optimistic that the vaccine would significantly stop transmission and infection. But this was later to be proved far from true for the COVID-19 vaccines. The original trial revealed that a person was 95% less likely to catch the autumn 2020 variant of COVID-19. This is known in medical speak as relative risk reduction. But to know the true value of any treatment, one needs to understand for that person by how much is their individual risk reduced by the intervention. That is the absolute individual risk reduction, right? I've been talking about this so much, absolute versus relative. Okay, one more part from the article and you'll see what I'm talking about. Importantly, it turns out that the trial results suggest that the vaccine was only preventing a person from having a symptomatic positive test and the absolute risk reduction for this was 0.84%. Okay, so the actual risk in the control group who didn't get vaccinated was 0.88%, right? Less than 1% risk of uh, having symptomatic symptomatic positive tests from COVID-19 from the... I forget, I think they had like 15 or 16,000 people in in that trial. That was the one that was the landmark study that got the Pfizer you know, vaccines approved. The actual risk of getting a symptomatic positive test, not even like dying or like having some sort of like real severe illness, just having a symptomatic positive test, the actual risk was 0.88%. And then they reduced that by 0.8%. So that it would be a risk of 0.04. Does that sound like (laughs) it's doing much? (laughs) Right? So in other words, if 10,000 people had been vaccinated and 10,000 had not, for every 10,000 people vaccinated in the trial, four would have tested positive with symptoms compared to 88 who were unvaccinated. Out of 10,000 people. Even in the unvaccinated group, 9,912 of the 10,000, over 99%, would not have tested positive during the trial period. Another way of expressing this is that you would need to vaccinate 119 people to prevent one symptomatic positive test. And then, of course, assumed to be indicative of an actual infection, which in itself is potentially misleading, but beyond the scope of this article. Do you see how crazy that is? The actual risk from COVID, according to the study, was less than 1%. And then the vaccine reduced that by, you know, whatever, 0.84% down to almost nothing, you know, down to just four out of (laughs) 10,000. And so based off of that, they could claim 95% effectiveness. Like, that's just fraud, right? Like, they're just lying. And thank goodness papers like this are coming out. Now I can just like point people to this and be like, this is what I've been talking about. (laughs) I'm going to move on from this. I don't want to talk about COVID anymore. What else did I want to mention? Okay, quick little Bitcoin update. We are on block height 756,735. Price of Bitcoin is trading at 19,127 US dollars. 
For one US dollar, you can buy 5,222 Satoshis. Don't forget that Satoshi is the smallest subunit of a Bitcoin. One Bitcoin can be subdivided 100 million times. 100 millionth of that is called a Satoshi. If you want to buy Bitcoin and you're in Canada, I recommend using ShakePay. I do have an affiliate link in the description of this podcast that you can uh, find and use. And I believe if you use that referral link for the first $100 you spend, you get a reward of $30. So if you're interested, give it a shot. Okay, let's do a little excerpt from this book that I've been reading, The Fiat Standard. I did an excerpt last week as well. And if you didn't catch that, go back to the previous episode. But for today's, we're going to go to chapter seven of the Fiat Standard, which is called Fiat Life. Uh, the subheading is Fiat Against Nature. Here's the author, Seyfedina Moose. Here's what he has to say. Nature offers humans a reality they must learn to deal with to survive. You must sow to reap. You must work to be rewarded. And you will suffer from want by not working. This is the nature of life for all living beings. Every creature needs to spend its day searching for food and trying to avoid becoming food. This is the natural survival instinct without which we would not have survived to be here today. As a monetary system whose constituent units are easy to produce for governments, fiat disturbs this natural order as it serves, not serves, sorry, as it severes the connection between work and reward. Rather than the market offering individuals the reward for their work as valued by the others they serve, fiat money makes monetary rewards highly dependent on political obedience and connections. Instead of learning to be productive, fiat teaches you to play politics. Instead of work being rewarded based on its productivity, it is rewarded based on artificial status games. Yeah, this makes me think of all these zombie companies that actually on paper are like are in a lot of debt but because interest rates are so low they just can keep rolling over their debt and you know borrowing more to pay off the previous debt and just keep the ball rolling keep it going because it doesn't matter interest rates are low anyway right doesn't have you don't have to produce anything to get value for it as long as you're just you know rolling over your debt and interest rates stay low anyway Next part of the book, it says, when you start to think deeply about the distortionary effects of a centrally planned monetary system, you start to see them everywhere. Money, after all, is one half of every economic transaction. Money is the main vehicle with which we can trade with our future selves through the act of saving. Of course, how are you going to save when your money's constantly being debased, right? Uh, that was just me saying that. The development of money allows humans to think of the future and make plans to provide for it. The harder the money, the more reliably we can provide for the future. The less uncertain the future is, the easier it is to think and plan for it, and the less it is discounted. Money is the medium for the communication of information in a market economy. Profit and loss are the signals that ensure the most productive continue to profit and receive the resources needed to produce more while those engaged in unproductive work lose their resources and stop wasting them. In a sound money economy, the only way for a business to survive is to produce something of value to others. At any point in time, all operational businesses must be productive, and the only exception would be the business on their way to shutting down. 
When money is controlled by governments, this process is perverted and the profit and loss mechanism is sabotaged. The requirement for survival is no longer productivity, but political acceptability and obsequiousness. Unproductive but politically favored firms can survive for decades, continuing to waste resources, while productive and politically unfavored firms can go out of business. At any point in time, the businesses that are operational will likely contain a large number of zombie parasites, draining resources away from productive members of society. By devaluing the monopoly currency, government essentially forces everyone to raise their time preference. At the same time, the devaluation of currency allows governments to meddle with all aspects of life. All right, that's it from the, from the book. So yeah, what he's saying is like when the future is uncertain because you have no idea if the amount of money you're saving is going to be enough for the future, you stop thinking about it. You just discount it. You're like, well, not my problem right now because all I got to focus on is right now. I got to survive right now. I can't think about thriving in the future because who knows what's going to happen in the future because it's so uncertain. Right. This comes to this concept of time preference. So what's called low time preference, it's thinking about the future. You're not thinking about as much about the present. You're thinking about what you can do now to preserve your wealth and your ability to survive and thrive in the future. When you have high time preference, that's when you, you have to discount the future because it's too uncertain. You can't figure out what to do. So you just got to focus on the here and now. So you make decisions that are possibly good short term, but horrible long term. And that's really the place we've come to. Anyway, with that sad (laughs) but true last thought, I'm going to end the podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for rating the podcast and sharing it with friends. Please continue to do so. I'd really like to grow the podcast and have more listeners. So if anyone's interested in this kind of stuff, in these topics, please share around. Otherwise, as always, stay active, be grateful, Jmart out. (laughs) 